0: Section 18 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 10, verses 31 to 42. Wickedness of human nature, honor put on Scripture by Christ, importance attached by Christ to His miracles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 10, verses 31 to 42. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I say to ye, ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond the Jordan, into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him, and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. We should observe in these verses the extreme wickedness of human nature. The unbelieving Jews at Jerusalem were neither moved by our Lord's miracles, nor by his preaching, They were determined not to receive him as their Messiah. Once more it is written that they took up stones to stone him. Our Lord had done the Jews no injury. He was no robber, murderer, or rebel against the law of the land. He was one whose life was love and who went about doing good. Acts chapter 10 verse 38 There was no fault or inconsistency in his character. There was no crime that could be laid to his charge. So perfect and spotless a man had never walked on the face of the earth, but yet the Jews hated him and thirsted for his blood. How true are the words of Scripture, and they hated him without a cause. John chapter 15 verse 25. How just the remark of an old divine, unconverted men, would kill God himself if they could only get at him. The true Christian has surely no right to wonder if he meets with the same kind of treatment as our blessed Lord. In fact, The more like he is to his master, and the more holy and spiritual his life, the more probable it is that he will have to endure hatred and persecution. Let him not suppose that any degree of consistency will deliver him from the cross. It is not his faults, but his graces, which call forth the enmity of men. The world hates to see anything of God's image. The children of the world are vexed and pricked in conscience when they see others better than themselves. Why did Cain hate his brother Abel and slay him? Because, says St. John, his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. 1 John 3, verse 12. Why did the Jews hate Christ? Because he exposed their sins and false doctrines, and they knew in their own hearts that he was right and they were wrong. The world, said our Lord, hateth me because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. John 7, verse 7. Let Christians make up their minds to drink the same cup and let them drink it patiently and without surprise. There is one in heaven who said, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. John chapter 15, verse 18 Let them remember this and take courage. The time is short. We are traveling on towards a day when all shall be set right, and every man shall receive according to his works. There is an end, and our expectation shall not be cut off. Proverbs 23, verse 18 We should observe, secondly, in these verses, the high honor that Jesus Christ puts on the Holy Scriptures. We find him using a text out of the Psalms as an argument against his enemies, in which the whole point lies in the single word, God's. And then, having quoted the text, he lays down the great principle, the Scripture cannot be broken. It is as though he said, wherever the Scripture speaks plainly on any subject, there can be no more question about it the cause is settled and decided. Every jot and tittle of Scripture is true and must be received as conclusive. The principle here laid down by our Lord is one of vast importance. Let us grasp it firmly and never let it go. Let us maintain boldly the complete inspiration of every word of the original Hebrew and Greek Scriptures. Let us believe that not only every book of the Bible, but every chapter, and not only every chapter, but every verse— And not only every verse, but every word, was originally given by inspiration of God. Inspiration, we must never shrink from asserting, extends not only to the thoughts and ideas of Scripture, but to the least words. The principle before us, no doubt, is rudely assaulted in the present day. Let no Christian heart fail because of these assaults. Let us stand our ground manfully and defend the principle of plenary inspiration as we would the apple of our eye. There are difficulties in Scripture. We need not shrink from conceding, things hard to explain, hard to reconcile, and hard to understand. But in almost all these difficulties, the fault, we may justly suspect, is not so much in Scripture as in our own weak minds. In all cases, we may well be content to wait for more light, and to believe that all shall be made clear at last. One thing we may rest assured is very certain. If the difficulties of plenary inspiration are to be numbered by thousands, the difficulties of any other view of inspiration are to be numbered by tens of thousands. The wisest course is to walk in the old path, the path of faith and humility, and say, I cannot give up a single word of my Bible. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The scripture cannot be broken. We should observe, lastly, in these verses, The importance which our Lord Jesus Christ attaches to His miracles. He appeals to them as the best evidence of His own divine mission. He bids the Jews look at them and deny them if they can. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works. The mighty miracles which our Lord performed during the three years of His earthly ministry are probably not considered as much as they ought to be in the present day. These miracles were not few in number. Forty times and more we read in the Gospel of His doing things entirely out of the ordinary course of nature, healing sick people in a moment, raising the dead with a word, casting out devils, calming winds and waves in an instant, walking on the water as on solid ground. These miracles were not all done in private among friends. Many of them were wrought in the most public manner under the eyes of unfriendly witnesses. We are so familiar with these things that we are apt to forget the mighty lesson they teach. They teach that he who worked these miracles must be nothing less than very God. They stamp his doctrines and precepts with the mark of divine authority. He only who created all things at the beginning could suspend the laws of creation at his will. He who could suspend the laws of creation must be one who ought to be thoroughly believed and implicitly obeyed. To reject one who confirmed his mission by such mighty works is the height of madness and folly. Hundreds of unbelieving men, no doubt, in every age, have tried to pour contempt on Christ's miracles and to deny that they were ever worked at all. But they labor in vain. Proofs upon proofs exist that our Lord's ministry was accompanied by miracles, and that this was acknowledged by those who lived in our Lord's time. Objectors of this sort would do well to take up the one single miracle of our Lord's resurrection from the dead, and disprove it if they can. If they cannot disprove that, they ought, as honest men, to confess that miracles are possible, and then, if their hearts are truly humble, they ought to admit that he whose mission was confirmed by such evidence must have been the Son of God. Let us thank God, as we turn from this passage, that Christianity has such abundant evidence That it is a religion from God. Whether we appeal to the internal evidence of the Bible, or to the lives of the first Christians, or to prophecy, or to miracles, or to history, we get one and the same answer. All say with one voice, Jesus is the Son of God, and believers have life through his name. Notes John chapter 10, verses 31 to 42. Verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones, etc. The conduct of the Jews is just the same as it was when our Lord said, before Abraham was, I am John chapter eight verse fifty nine They regarded his words as blasphemy and proceeded to take the law in their own hands as they did in Stephen's case, and to inflict the punishment due to blasphemy. See Leviticus chapter 24 verses 14 to sixteen He that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him. So Numbers chapter 15, verse 36, 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 13. The Jews, of course, had no power to put any man to death, being under the dominion of the Romans. And if they did stone any one, it would have been a sudden tumultuary proceeding or act of lynch law. Let it be noted that the Greek word for took up here is not the same that is used at chapter 8, verse 59 here it rather means they carried. Parkhurst thinks this implies the great size of the stones they brought. No doubt the stones used in stoning to death were not pebbles but large stones. Yet I rather incline to think that it shows that they had to carry stones from some little distance for their murderous purpose. We can hardly suppose that there were suitable stones lying about within an old finished building like Solomon's porch, though there might be stones at a little distance on account of the repairs of the temple." Augustine remarks, Behold, the Jews understood what Arians did not understand. Maldonatus observes that These stones cry out against the Arians. Verse 32 Jesus, many good works, showed, Father, etc. Our Lord here appeals to the many miracles He had publicly wrought before the Jews in discharging His commission as sent by the Father to be the Messiah. All good and excellent works, in which none could find any fault, and he asked whether they proposed to stone him for any of them they had often asked for signs and proofs of his being their messiah well he had wrought many such signs did they really mean to kill him for his works he had gone about only doing good did they intend to stone him for this the expression i have showed is curious and we should have expected rather i have worked it probably means i have publicly exhibited before your eyes and not in a corner but in such a manner as to court the fullest public observation, many wonderful proofs of my Messiahship. Compare John chapter 2, verse 18. What sign showest thou? So, St. Paul says that God shall in his own time show the appearing of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. The expression is probably a Hebraism. Compare Psalms 4, verse 6, 60, verse 3, 71 verse 20, Exodus chapter 7 verse 9. The expression from my father points to the great truth continually brought forward by our Lord in this gospel, viz. that all his works as well as words were given to him by the Father to be worked and spoken in the world, and ought therefore to be held in special reverence. Hengstenberg observes that the expression many good works evidently supposes that John knew of many other miracles which he does not record and that many have been done at Jerusalem, besides the few that are here recorded. For which works stone me? This could be literally rendered, On account of which work of all these are you stoning me? Some, as Galter and Tholuck, have thought that there is a slight tinge of sarcasm about the question. Is it so that you are actually going to stone me for my good actions? Are not men generally stoned for evil doings? Yet this seems an unlikely idea, and is needless. Is not the meaning made clear by simply inverting the order of the words? For what work or action are you going to stone me? Justice requires that criminals should be punished for doing evil works, but all the many wonderful works I have done among you have been good and not evil. You surely will not stone me for any of these. Reason and your laws teach that this would be wrong. It is not therefore for my works and life that you are going to stone me. I challenge you to prove that I have done evil. Which of you convicteth me of sin? Taken in this view, the verse is simply a strong assertion, made by our Lord, of his own entire innocence of any crime for which he could be stoned. Hutcheson thinks that some stones were already cast at Christ, and therefore he says, Do you stone me? Yet this seems needless. The present tense here implies only, Are ye on the point of stoning me? Verse 33. The Jews answered, etc. Our Lord's confident challenge, as in chapter 8, verse 46, seems to have been found unanswerable by the Jews. They could not prove any evil work against him. They therefore reply that they do not propose to stone him for his works, but for having spoken blasphemous words. The precise nature of the blasphemy, they say, is that, being nothing but a mere man, he made himself God, or spoke of himself in such a way as showed that he claimed to be God. This is a very remarkable verse. It is like chapter 5 verse 18. The Jews sought to kill him because he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. It shows clearly that the Jews in our Lord's time attached a much higher and deeper sense to our Lord's frequently used language about God being his father than modern readers are apt to do. In fact, they regarded it as nothing less than a claim to equality with God. Modern Arians and Socinians, Who profess to see nothing in our Lord's Sonship but a higher degree of that relationship which exists between all believers and God, would do well to mark this verse. What they say they cannot see, the Jews who hated Christ could see. This contemporaneous exposition, to use a legal phrase of our Lord's words, deserves great respect and carries with it great weight and authority. As a man our Lord was a Jew, educated and trained among the Jews. Common Sense points out that the Jews who lived in his time were more likely to put correct sense on his words than modern Socinians. Galter observes how frequently wicked men and persecutors of Christ's people have affected a zeal for God's glory and pretended a horror of blasphemy. The accusers of Naboth and Stephen are examples. So also the Spanish Inquisition. A. Clark observes that had the Jews, as many called Christians do, understood our Lord only to mean, by being one with the Father, that he had unity of sentiment with the Father, they would not have attempted to treat him as a blasphemer. In this sense, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, David, and all the prophets were one with God. But what irritated them was that they understood him to speak of unity of nature. Therefore they say, Thou makest thyself God. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, etc. Our Lord's defence of his own language against the charge of blasphemy is very remarkable. It is an argument from a lesser to a greater. If princes who are merely men are called gods, he who was the eternal son of the father could surely not be justly chargeable with blasphemy for calling himself the son of God. The expression your law means the scriptures. Sometimes our Lord speaks of two great divisions into which the Jews divided the Old Testament, viz. the Law and the Prophets, as Matthew 22, verse 40. The Law then included not the books of Moses only, but everything down to the end of the Song of Solomon. Sometimes he distributes the Scriptures into three parts, the Law, the Psalms, and the Prophets, as in Luke 22, verse 44. Here he makes use of one word for all the Old Testament, and calls it the Law, by saying, your law, our Lord reminds his hearers that he appeals to their own honored sacred writings. The expression, I said ye are gods, is drawn from the 82nd Psalm, in which Aesop is speaking of princes and rulers and their position and duties. Their elevation above other men was so great, and their consequent responsibility for the state of nations so great, that compared to other men it might be said, ye are as gods. A king is called the Lord's anointed, Second Samuel chapter one verse fourteen. So ye judge not for man, but for the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter nineteen verse six. Princes and magistrates are ordained of God, derive their power from God, act for God, and stand between the people and God. Hence, in a sense, they are called gods. Those who wish to see this subject fully worked out will see it in Hall and Swinnock's exposition of the eighty-second Psalm. We should observe how our Lord appeals to Scripture as the judge of controversy. Is it not written? A plain text ought to settle every disputed point. He might have argued. He simply quotes a text. By so doing, he puts a peculiar honor on Scripture. It is worth noticing that the Hebrew word rendered judges in our version of Exodus chapter twenty two verses eight and nine might have been rendered gods. Compare Exodus chapter twenty two verse twenty eight. Chapter 21, verse 6 Verse 35 If he called them gods. Here our Lord proceeds to show what was the edge and point of his argument, all turned on the use of the single word gods in one single verse of a psalm. It is not very clear what governs the word we render called in this sentence. Our translators evidently thought it meant God, but why should it not refer to your law in the last verse? if your own book of the law in the psalm had called certain persons gods. Chrysostom observes, What he saith is of this kind. If those who have received this honor by grace are not found fault with for calling themselves gods, how can he deserve to be rebuked who hath this by nature? Theophylact says the same. To whom the word of God came. This is a rather difficult expression. Some, as Bullinger and Bergon, think it refers to the commission from God, which rulers receive. They are persons to whom God has spoken and commanded them to rule for him. Some, as Alford, think it simply means, If he called them gods, to whom God spake in these passages. But it may justly be replied that it does not say, God spake, but, There was the word of God. Of the two views, the former seems best— the Greek is almost the same as that of Luke chapter three verse two. The word of God came to John, meeting a special commission. Heinzius suggests that the sentence means against whom the word of God was spoken in the eighty-second Psalm, that Psalm containing a rebuke of princes. But this seems doubtful. Pierce thinks that it means with whom was the word of judgment, and refers to the Septuagint version of Second Chronicles chapter nineteen verse six. It deserves notice that it is never said of Christ Himself that the Word of God came to Him. He was above all other commissioned judges. And the Scripture cannot be broken. In this remarkable parenthesis, our Lord reminds His Jewish hearers of their own acknowledged principle that the Scripture cannot be annulled or broken. That is, that everything which it says must be received reverently and unhesitatingly, and that not one jot or tittle of it ought to be disregarded. Every word of Scripture must be allowed its full weight, and must neither be clipped, passed over, nor evaded. If the 82nd Psalm calls princes who are mere men, gods, there cannot be any impropriety in applying the expression to persons commissioned by God. The expression may seem strange at first. Never mind, it is in the Scripture and must be right. Few passages appear to me, to prove so incontrovertibly, the plenary inspiration and divine authority of every word in the original text of the Bible. The whole point of our Lord's argument hinges on the divine authority of a single word. Was that word in the Psalms? Then it justified the application of the expression, God's, to men. Scripture cannot be broken. The theories of those who say that the writers of the Bible were inspired, but not all their writings, or the ideas of the Bible inspired, but not all the language in which these ideas are conveyed, appear to be totally irreconcilable with our Lord's use of the sentence before us. There is no other standing ground, I believe about inspiration, excepting the principle that it is plenary and reaches to every syllable. Once leaving that ground, we are plunged into a sea of uncertainties. Like the carefully composed language of wills, settlements, and conveyances, every word of the Bible must be held sacred, and not a single flaw or slip of pen admitted. Let it be noted that the literal meaning of the word rendered broken is loosed or untied. Gill observes, This is a Jewish way of speaking, much used in the Talmud. When one doctor has produced an argument, another says, It may be broken, or objected to, or refuted, but the scripture cannot be broken. Hengstenberg says, It cannot be doubted that the scripture is broken by those who assert that the Psalms breathe spirit of revenge that Solomon's song is a common Oriental love song, that there are in the prophets predictions never to be fulfilled, or by those who deny the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Verse 36. Say of ye him, etc. Our Lord in this verse presses home on the Jews the force of the expression in the 82nd Psalm. If princes are called gods, do ye mean to call me, whom the Father sanctified from eternity to be the Messiah, and sent into the world in due time a blasphemer, because I have said I am the Son of God. Say ye of him would have been better rendered, say ye of me. The Greek leaves it open. The expression, whom the Father hath sanctified, must mean whom the Father hath set apart and appointed from all eternity in the covenant of grace as a priest is sanctified and set apart for the service of the temple. It cannot mean literally made holy, It implies eternal dedication and appointment to a certain office. This is one of the places which teach the eternal generation of Christ. Long before He came into the world, the Father, not God, observe, had sanctified and appointed the Son. He did not become the Son when He entered the world. He was the Son from all eternity. The expression, sent into the world, means that mission of Christ to be the Savior, which took place when He became incarnate, and came among us in the form of a man. He was the Father's sent one, the apostle of our profession. See Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, John chapter 3, verse 17, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. He that was so sanctified and sent might well speak of himself as the Son of God and equal with God. Calvin remarks, There is a sanctification that is common to all believers, but here Christ claims for himself something far more excellent, namely, that he alone was separated from all others, that the grace of the Spirit and majesty of God might be displayed in him, as he said formerly, Him hath God the Father sealed. John chapter 6, verse 27. Verse 37. If I do not the works, etc. Here our Lord once more appeals to the evidence of his miracles, and challenges attention to them, I do not ask you to believe that I am the Son of God and the Messiah, if I do not prove it by my works. If I did no miracles, you might be justified in not believing me to be the Messiah and in calling me a blasphemer. Here again we should observe how our Lord calls His miracles the works of His Father. They were works given to Him by His Father to do. They were such works as none but God the Father could possibly perform. Galter observes, What a proof this verse indirectly supplies of the nullity of the Pope's claim to be God's vice-regent and head of the Church. What are his works? What evidence of a divine mission does he give? Musculus also remarks that the Pope's high claims and great-sounding titles are useless, so long as his works contradict his words. Verse 38. But if I do through, etc. Our Lord here concludes his reply to the Jews, If I do the works of my Father, then, though ye may not be convinced by what I say, be convinced by what I do. Though ye resist the evidence of my words, yield to the evidence of my works. In this way, learn to know and believe that I and my Father are indeed one, he in me and I in him, and that in claiming to be his Son, I speak no blasphemy. We should note here, as elsewhere, our Lord's strong and repeated appeals to the evidence of his miracles. He sent to John the Baptist, and desired him to mark his works, if he would know whether he was the coming one, go and tell John what ye have seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, etc. Just so he argues here. Matthew chapter 11, verse 4. Let us note the close and intimate union that exists between the first and second persons of the Trinity. The Father is in me, and I in him. Such language can never be reconciled with the view of Socinians. By these words, says Bloomfield, our Lord meant communion of mind and equality of power. It is plain that the Jews clearly understood that he claimed and ascribed to himself the attributes of Godhead and made himself equal with the Father. Chrysostom remarks that our Lord seems to say, I am nothing different from what the Father is, so however as that I remain Son, and the Father is nothing different from what I am, so however is that He remains Father. He that knows me has known the Father and learned the Son. Verse 39 Therefore sought, take him. Here we see the utter insensibility of our Lord's hardened enemies to any argument or appeal to their reason. In spite of what he had now said, they showed a determination to go on with their wicked designs and tried again to lay violent hands on him. Nothing seems to harden the heart and take away the reasoning of faculty so completely as obstinate resistance to plain evidence. But he escaped, hand. This would be literally rendered, and he came forth out of their hand, as in Luke chapter 4 verse 30 and at chapter 8 verse 59 of this gospel. The escape seems to have been effected by miracle. A restraint was put on the hands of his enemies, and their eyes were temporarily blinded. Verse 40, and went, again, Jordan, John, baptized. I know not to what the expression, again, can refer here, except to the time when our Lord began his ministry by coming to be baptized by John at Betharabah, beyond Jordan. See John chapter 1, verse 28. I do not find that he has been there again during the three years of his ministry. There's something touching and instructive in the choice of this place where our Lord began his ministry, there he resolved to enter it. It would remind his Jewish hearers that John the Baptist had repeatedly proclaimed him as the Lamb of God and they could not deny John's divine mission. It would remind his own disciples of the first lessons which they learned under their master's teaching and recall old things to their minds. It is good to revisit old scenes sometimes. The flesh needs many helps to memory. Henry makes the quaint remark, The bishop of our souls came not to be fixed in one sea, but to go about from place to place doing good. And there he abode. Our Lord must evidently have remained here between three and four months, from the feast of dedication to the last Passover when he was crucified, that is, from winter to Easter. Where precisely, and with whom he stayed, we do not know. It must have been a solemn and quiet season to himself and his disciples. Musculus observes that this verse teaches us that it is lawful to regard localities in which great spiritual works have been done with more than ordinary reverence and affection. Verse 41. And many resorted, etc. Our Lord's choice of an abode seems to have had an excellent effect. It was not so far from Jerusalem, but that many could come to hear him, as they did hear John the Baptist, There, on the very spot where John, now no longer living, used to preach to enormous crowds and baptize, they could not help being reminded of John's repeated testimony to Christ. And the consequence was that they said, John, whom we believe to have been a prophet, certainly did no miracles, but everything that he said of this Jesus as the coming one, whose shoes he was not worthy to wear, was true. We believed John to be a prophet sent by God much more ought this man to be believed. Let us observe that John's preaching was not forgotten after his death, though it seemed to produce little effect during his life. Herod could cut short his ministry, put him in prison, and have him beheaded, but he could not prevent his words being remembered. Sermons never die. The word of God is not bound. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. We never read of any miracle or mighty work being performed by John. He was only a voice. Like all other ministers, he had one great work, to preach and prepare the way for Christ. To do this is more lasting work than to perform miracles, though it does not make so much outward show. Besser remarks, John is a type of every servant of Christ. The gift of working miracles, imparted but to few, we can do without. If only one hearer testify of us, all things that they spake of Christ are true, If only our preaching, though it may last longer than three years, is sealed as the true witness of Christ through the experience of those who believe and are saved, then we shall have done miracles enough. Verse 42. And many believed there. Whether this was head belief, the faith of intellectual conviction, or heart belief, the faith of reception of Christ as a Savior, we are left in doubt. We have the same expression in chapter 8 verse 30 and chapter 11 verse 45. Yet we need not doubt that very many Jews, both here and elsewhere, were secretly convinced of our Lord's Messiahship and after his resurrection came forward and confessed their faith and were baptized. It seems highly probable that this accounts for the great number converted at once on the day of Pentecost and at other times. See Acts chapter 4 verse 4, chapter 6 verse 7, and chapter 21 verse 20. The way had been prepared in their hearts long before by our Lord's own preaching, though at the time they had not courage to avow it. The good that is done by preaching is not always seen immediately. Our Lord sowed, and his apostles reaped, all over Palestine. Chrysostom has a long and curious comment on this verse. He draws from it the great advantage of privacy and quiet to the soul, and the benefit that women especially derive from living a retired life at home compared to men. His exhortation to wives to use their advantages in this respect and to help their husbands' souls is very singular when we consider the times he wrote in and the state of society at Constantinople. Nothing, he says, is more powerful than a pious and sensible woman to bring a man into proper order and to mold his soul as she will. Henry observes, Where the preaching of repentance has had success, There, the preaching of reconciliation and gospel grace is most likely to be prosperous. Where John has been acceptable, Jesus will not be unacceptable. The jubilee trumpet sounds sweetest in the ears of those who, in the Day of Atonement, have afflicted their souls for sin. End of section 18.